0: Well, thank you, Allison, that was a fantastic and very kind introduction, I appreciate it. Thank you to all of you um, for inviting me to come talk to you about a topic that is also very near and dear to my heart, as you can tell. Let me just pull up this talk really quickly, and hello to everyone else on the live stream. Good morning. All right, so the topic of the talk is Teaming Up to Liberate the Hospitalist Child Through a Culture of Mobility. and. I think this topic is relevant to everyone who cares for kids in the hospital and beyond after they leave the hospital and hopefully you'll see why over the course of the talk. My interest in social media and passion for it along with Dr. Carroll obviously is outside the scope of this talk and this session, but please if you do tweet, use hashtag PedsICU and hashtag ICUREhab. So um, I have several disclosures with regards to my research support. Um, Ever since I joined faculty, I have a lot of foundation grants to thank for keeping the momentum for the research that I'm going to talk about. Um, and I also have an r 21 that's ongoing currently. So the objectives of the talk are to start out first by talking about the characteristics of sleep across healthy children, as well as critically ill kids, discuss how sedatives and analgesics can affect sleep in the developing brain, Uh, define what early mobilization actually means and discuss what we know about it in both the adult and the pediatric literature. And finally, discuss the interplay of all of these aspects, sleep, sedation, delirium, in team-based initiatives. And I see a very multidisciplinary team out in the audience, which is fantastic. So first I'd like to start with a question. How do you feel about the quality of life of your patients and their families after PICU discharge? Um, A, I feel most children return to their baseline quality of life that they had prior to admission. Any takers for that one? All right, B, although many children do well, some likely have a decreased quality of life. Hands, okay. Most children will have some decrease in quality of life. And I have no idea because we rarely know how kids do after the PICU. All right, smattering of hands there. So I think that this schematic really tells it all. The patient experience, whether you're an adult critically ill patient or a pediatric patient, the expectations are very different from the reality. You think you're going to come to the hospital because you're sick and you're gonna get better and then all will be well once you leave. But it is a very, very tangled route that patients take. And post-intensive care syndrome or PICS is really a big hot topic starting in the adult literature and now evolving in pediatrics, which shows that basically, Patients do have issues after they leave the hospital and they can span a wide variety of different things, including mental health, cognitive impairments, and physical impairments. And it impacts not only the patient, but their family members. And SCCM has taken on this initiative through Thrive to basically champion ICU liberation initiatives, which we'll talk about at length. This is a a systematic review by one of my fellows, Liz Harrop at Johns Hopkins. As we were talking about PICs in the adult population, we said, well, we haven't really defined PICs in pediatrics, but let's see what characteristics are actually present in critically ill children. We found that not surprisingly, there are a ton of studies out there that have been done in this area, maybe not using that term PICs, but looking at physical, neurocognitive, and psychological morbidities after discharge, and kids do have them. So SCCM, the ICU Liberation Initiative, I mentioned, those of you who are interested in learning more, I encourage you to go to this website, iculiberation.org. It has a ton of wonderful resources to learn about what literature is out there with regards to adults and now in the evolving Pediatric ICU Liberation Initiative. So what is IC liberation? So we're gonna talk about the ABCDEF bundle, which Allison just mentioned through the Bloom Initiative is what they're trying to incorporate here in Connecticut. Um, a is assessing, preventing, and managing pain. And I think as pediatricians, we do an excellent job of that. That's something that's always been a priority is using pain scores to objectively assess patient's pain. B, both spontaneous breathing trials and um, spontaneous awakening trials. C, choice of sedation, D, delirium, E, early mobility and exercise, and F, family engagement and empowerment. There is a ton of literature for every single bundle component in the ABCDF bundle in adults. And this is one of the first papers that was published really showing that putting all of these Bundle components together could lead to decreased delirium, less time on the ventilator, and patients being more likely to be mobilized. So this paper really kind of started the movement to say, wow, maybe siloing each of these aspects is not the right approach, but we need to put them all together so they can be symbiotic. So that's great. We have wonderful evidence in adults, but what about in kids? So I think you would all agree that choice of sedation, spontaneous breathing trials, delirium, early mobilization, and family involvement. Taking all of those things into consideration are equally, if not more important, for kids with developing brains who have a very long life to lead ahead of them. But we have a lot of challenges when we take care of critically ill kids that our adult colleagues do not have. Number one, in the PICU, there is no other place that cares for a more heterogeneous group of patients with regards to ages and development. Children are often unable to understand or communicate the basis or need for the interventions that we're providing them, so we worry. We worry that they're going to pull out their endotracheal tube or their vascular access device, and so what do we do? We give them heavy doses of sedation to make sure that that doesn't happen. We also worry that they're scared and they're anxious and we don't want them to remember what we think is a very traumatic experience. So what do we do? We give them opioids, we give them benzos so they don't remember that experience. But really creating a healing environment in the hospital just makes sense and optimizing all of these different aspects really are practical and pragmatic solutions to potentially improving the outcomes of kids who are admitted not only to the PICU but to the hospital in general. And the expectation is often that sedation, sleep, delirium and rehab can be tackled in silos. So we're gonna write a sedation protocol and then we'll tackle the next thing. We're gonna write a sleep hygiene protocol and talk about opening shades and minimizing noise. Let's start screening for delirium. Let's start mobilizing patients. But the reality is that they're very much interconnected and there's a significant interplay and that we can actually tackle this to create a culture of early mobility. And I'll talk a little bit more about this young lady um, at the end of the talk. So what is the cost? So um, I get asked this a lot, you know, so when, as you start talking about creating a mobility culture, obviously you have to have money, right? The answer is no. So at Hopkins, when we said we wanted to initiate this whole mobility bundle, there was no cash flow coming to this program. They said, great, you want to do it, go for it. So really what was the cost? It was multi-professional collaboration. It was a lot of passionate interdisciplinary care providers coming together in a room and talking about and taking on the challenges that we needed to do to overcome this culture of immobility. So just to give you some historical context, our PICU culture back in 2013, all of our mechanically ventilated kids were universally over-sedated we're using high prevalence of sedative use and escalation. It wasn't unusual for a child to be on one mic per kilo per hour of fentanyl hour one, but be up to three mics per kilo per hour on hour five, and kids get escalated more quickly than adults. We know this. We were ordering PTOT consults, basically when all of the acute resuscitative stuff was over, right? So whenever us as physicians had stopped thinking about how do we deal with the pressure support and how do we deal with the mechanical ventilation when there's nothing else left to do, Oh, let's consult PTOT. we were using restraints pretty much universally for all our mechanically ventilated kids. We weren't screening for diagnosing or treating delirium. And we were using benzos, Benadryl, and narcotic to promote sleep. So let's talk a little bit about sleep. So obviously everyone in the room knows sleep is important. Hopefully you all had a wonderful night of sleep and you woke up refreshed and ready to go. Um, Natural sleep's integral to our physiologic homeostasis, thermoregulation, all of our organ systems depend on sleep. And I'm sure you felt it when you're sleep deprived or you're post-call, things just don't feel right. You might feel a little tachycardic, your blood pressure might be a little high, you just got that foggy feeling that just doesn't feel good. I love this quote because it really kind of highlights the fundamental needs of a child to grow up healthy. Broadly speaking, it might be argued that the most fundamental requirements for children to grow up healthy are loving support and protection by their parents and caretakers, adequate nutrition, and adequate sleep. These are basic human needs, especially for the child with a growing brain. But this is typically what you would see in a pediatric intensive care unit, right? So the patient on your left, and this is really what started to inspire my work, was this picture, exactly. You have a a little girl, who's about six years old with a fluorescent light shining above her head 24 hours a day. She has about 10 infusion pumps next to her that are constantly beeping and alarming. She's on an oscillator, she's on ECMO, her eyes are closed, and we were using this term that she's sleeping. So is she really sleeping? Is she experiencing that natural restorative sleep that is so critical for healthy brain development? So I just posed that question to you. And then the baby on the right is less instrumented, right? Could be a baby in the NICU or the PICU, is intubated, has a few monitors on. Again, eyes are closed, but is that baby experiencing natural sleep? We don't know. So the sleep stages, just a little basics. All of us go through three non-REM sleep stages over the course of a night sequentially, which finishes into a rapid eye movement sleep cycle, and that's typically when you dream. And the average adult spends about 25% of their time in rapid eye movement sleep, and infants spend up to 80% of their time in that active or rapid eye movement sleep. So that just shows you how different sleep trajectories are as we age. So really the principal concepts here is that sleep is important for neurosensory development, preservation of brain plasticity, learning and long-term memory, and that the evolution of those sleep processes are really a reflection of how our brain is developing over time. And this is just a schematic that, um, from a really wonderful paper that shows that the first year is a critical, critical time. And we know in the PICU, even though we care for children ages zero to 18, the vast majority of our patients are infants. So we are caring for those children at a very critical time in their neurodevelopment. So I'm just gonna pose this out here if you know the answer to this. What is the most common time for baths in your unit? Day shift, night shift before 10 o'clock, Night shift after 10 o'clock? Yes, no, totally variable. So I think probably, I would say that in the majority of units across the country, um, we're doing baths at night shift after 10 o'clock. Similar for x-rays, so what time do we do x-rays? Seven to 10? 10 to five? 5 a.m. to 7 a.m.? Right, so a lot of nods. So 5 a.m. to 7 a.m., why do we do that? it's convenient for us. Why? We want the x-ray by the time we start rounding so we can start making decisions. But how is that good for the patient? Again, I pose that question to you and we can talk about that a bit more. So lots of different risk factors for sleep disturbances in the hospital, medications, noise, light, pain, cares and interventions, primarily immobility. So if you don't exercise, you're not gonna sleep well at night compared to a day when you did get a lot of exercise and you sleep very soundly. but We keep these kids in bed and these patients in bed all day and we expect them to have normal sleep-wake cycles. And that's not always the case. And we have this vicious cycle phenomenon that we start to perpetuate. So you're not sleeping, quote unquote. So what do we do? We give you more sedation. Your sedation needs start to escalate over the course of your intubation. Your sleep quality worsens as a result. They get delirious and more agitated, but if you're not screening for a diagnosing delirium, you call it agitation and not sleeping. So what do we do? We give you a benzo, we give you an opioid, and this gets worse and worse, and we end up discharging kids or having kids in the unit longer because they're physiologically dependent on methadone and Valium and a host of other medications that we need in order to wean them from these meds. Hospital sleep is not a priority. I'm hoping that's improving over time, but when I started this, I'm an anesthesiologist and an intensivist who wants to study sleep medicine. I didn't do a pulmonary critical care fellowship. I didn't do a sleep fellowship. So I needed to learn more about this area because it was very new. Um, So, whenever you don't understand what's going on in an area, you do a systematic review. And I'm going to bring up a couple pearls over time for the residents in the room just to kind of see how you learn more about an issue. So uh, I wanted to see how much we're studying sleep in the PICU. Maybe everyone's doing this and my unit was the only one that wasn't um, tackling it. So sleep and PICU, systematic review search, very basic. How many papers out there mention those two words in the same paper? Our NICU colleagues, they're the bomb. They really care about this stuff. Neurodevelopmental care is a major focus of <laughs> theirs. The PICU, however, we could only find nine studies, nine studies that mentioned sleep in the PICU, and four of them came from the same randomized controlled trial looking at sleep and burn patients comparing ambient to Heldol and whether that was a benefit. And about the, the, two of the studies basically used subjective assessment are your eyes closed or are your eyes open? So you can see there was a big gap there. So next, after I identified that gap, I wanted to see maybe our clinical practice doesn't match the literature. So let's survey my intensivist colleagues and see what we're doing. So among 341 intensivists internationally, less than 15% were aware of any efforts to optimize sleep in their PICUs. Basic things, noise reduction, lighting, earplugs, eye masks. What about drugs? So what were we doing with regards to sedation? Not surprisingly, greater than 85% of my intensivist colleagues were using a combination of a benzo and an opioid as an infusion in mechanically ventilated kids as their first line agent and less than 10% were using dexmedetomidine or Presidex due to institutional or cost restrictions. So what's wrong with opioids and benzos, right? They're great drugs for the right indications So first of all, opioids and benzos can help you fall asleep, but the quality of that sleep is significantly diminished. So that's why we got used to this kind of rhythm of giving a benzo to help patients sleep. If you've taken Benadryl at night to help you sleep, how many of you felt really good when you woke up after that Benadryl? Probably not. Again, Benadryl helps you fall asleep. The quality of that sleep is very poor. And we found out early through the adult literature that benzodiazepines are the only independent risk factor for the development of delirium with regards to medications. So I think that's a very important point that will keep coming up over time. Dexmedetomidine, so less than 10% at the time we're using dex, but dex actually is the one sedative medication that most closely induces an EEG pattern that's consistent with natural sleep. Noise and light. So I just barred a couple sound and light meters and said, let's look at what noise and light looks like in our unit. So OSHA and the EPA recommends that hospitals have less than 45 decibels at all times in their units and less than 35 decibels during sleeping hours. So here was our unit. So the green are the LEQ minimums. So that means we never went below 50 decibels, but often during the same epoch or the same minute, we would peak up to 95 decibels. So can you imagine what that's doing to a child is to never have decibel level less than 50 and have these constant peaks that can increase their heart rate and wake them up out of sleep over time. Maybe that was just a bad day. This was 24 hours. So we looked at a five day period. And you can see here that again, consistently the peaks were into the 80s and 90s. What about light? So this is the light in my office. I have a nice big window in my office and you can see the Y axis goes from zero to 60,000 lux. So every day, maybe this was kind of a not-so-sunny day, but every day we had these nice peaks in luxe levels over time. The y-axis in the PICU goes from 0 to 600. And you can see here that it was consistently stable throughout the course. Now I noticed in your PICU you have these big beautiful windows, and so that, this was in a unit that was had shared rooms, did not have consistent sunlight or windows. So obviously that can be variable between units. So then I wanted to try to understand what sleep looks like in the PICU. So we did a pilot study looking at eight subjects who were healthy developmentally appropriate before they came to the hospital to see how sedatives can impact the sleep patterns during intubation. So in the top row are healthy children that have been age and gender matched to the PICU patients in the bottom row. So you can see this is what a normal healthy child's sleep looks like at night. This is a non-REM period one, non-REM period two, three, four, alternating with these valleys, which are REM sleep periods. And you can see it's a beautiful homeostatic regulation over the course of the night that decreases over time. Here are our picky patients. They absolutely have no rhythmicity, completely flat, um, really no evidence of any sort of normal or ultradian pattern. So then I say, okay, people often say to me, Sapna, if you want to talk about sleep in the PICU, that's great. Why don't we just give everyone melatonin, call it a day. Melatonin is supposed to be great for sleep. You can buy it at Walgreens. Um, so it must be totally low risk and something easy to do, right? So let's talk about melatonin. It's produced by the pineal gland. It's under control of the super uh, circadian pacemaker of the SCN. It peaks around 2 a.m. and decreases to daylight levels by 8 a.m. and in adult, Patients, they have shown that nocturnal melatonin suppression has been noted in ICU and post-operative patients. So this is the melatonin pathway. Um, You know, there's a reason they say drink milk, eat turkey, you'll fall asleep, it'll make you increase your melatonin production. Because tryptophan goes down the serotonin pathway and results in melatonin production. But when you're inflamed, that can increase IDO, indolamine 2,3-deoxygenase, and that can lead us down the kinurnin pathway instead and potentially decrease melatonin production. So we started looking at some preliminary data in our PICU patients, just to give everyone a little pause about melatonin maybe not being the one fix for everything. So these are healthy children in the solid lines. You can see here, they have this beautiful peak around 12 to 2 a.m. in their melatonin levels. Here's the two patients, exactly same diagnosis and age, One patient had consistently high melatonin levels that didn't really change over time, and the other patient had very low levels. So again, we really don't understand kind of the physiology of how melatonin levels work, and in some circumstances, melatonin may be helpful, but isn't a one-size-fits-all strategy. So maybe sleep is just impacted in the PICU, and things get better as you leave the unit. So we wanted to try to understand the continuum of care, what happens after discharge from the unit. So this was an observational study of um, children ages zero to 18 um, who had actigraphy initiated on post day, post-op day one. So how many of you wear a Fitbit or something that can give you your sleep-wake patterns? Um, so that can be a very useful uh, strategy to try to understand what your own sleep-wake patterns look like, but we can do that in research as well. So this is hopefully what your actigraphy looks like. This, each row is one day. And you can see this is daytime hours, you have a lot of activity, then you consistently fall asleep at around the same time at night, and that's a beautiful actigraph. Probably most of you in the room don't have an actigraph that looks like that. This is the actigraphy actigraphy plot of one of our Down syndrome patients. So Down syndrome patients tend to be much more challenging to sedate um, in the post-operative period, especially after cardiac surgery. So this young man was 13. This is after extubation. You can see he probably got a lot of drugs to remain intubated. And in his first post-op day, he was very quiet. So you can see there wasn't a lot of activity there, but look what happened here. He woke up and he did not go back to sleep or even attempt to try to get sleep for 24 hours, 48 hours, and then another 12 hours. So about 60 hours of continuous wakefulness for this young man. And if we were screening for delirium at the time, you would have seen that he was floridly delirious and obviously very vexing, not only for him, but for his family members as well. Uh, This is a four-year-old bladder augmentation who had an epidural. So again, um, probably takes naps occasionally during the day at baseline, but you can see here really no evidence of any sort of circadian rhythm. Someone decided to give him a benzo and then he became floridly delirious here, um, had hyperactive delirium, but over time maybe started to improve. So it's possible that kids do go to the floor and start to consolidate their sleep over time. But what was really impressive about this data is out of looking at 2,448 24 hour periods of hospitalized patient data, we couldn't distinguish day night differences in 40% of subjects. So essentially 40% of subjects had day and night look exactly the same with regards to activity. So we have a lot of room for improvement for sleep hygiene for our patients. So we've learned that sleep is important, it's an evolution of brain, uh, it's a marker of brain development and that potentially that these sleep disturbances that start in the hospital may have an impact down the line. So let's talk a little bit about delirium. So what is delirium? So delirium is a disturbance in attention and awareness, disturbance in cognition. It develops over a short period of time and fluctuates throughout the day to differentiate it from dementia for example and you can't explain it due to a pre-existing or evolving neurocognitive disorder. In the adult ICU, about 60 to 80% of mechanically ventilated patients are delirious, 50 to 70% of non-ventilated patients. So it's not just an issue of intubated patients. Hypoactive delirium. So this one's a very interesting one. A still patient is a quiet and good patient, right? Easier to take care of because they're not agitated, they're not pulling things out but they can have hypoactive delirium. So this is a really important point that we'll keep coming back to. Hyperactive delirium is very easy to diagnose, right? So if they're (coughs) flying off the bed, you can easily say they're delirious, but it's the patients that have hypoactive delirium that we're missing. In adults, it leads to a threefold increase in six-month mortality. So it's not trivial. New nursing home placement, increased length of stay, increased mortality, and increased days on the ventilator. Delirium is not a new issue, so this is a really beautiful quote from 1959, the problem of delirium is far from an academic one. Not only does the presence of it complicate and render more difficult the treatment of a serious illness, but also it carries the serious possibility of permanent irreversible brain damage. So really, it's what we're tackling right now. So why should we care about delirium and focus on sleep promotion? While sleep promotion is low cost, it's non-invasive, and it really is culture change and interdisciplinary collaboration. We have a lack of prophylactic agents to reduce delirium. So for example, there have been some very large multicenter studies done in adults looking at can prophylactic Haldol improve delirium rates and the answer is no. Medication is not the answer. And it just makes sense for the developing brain. This is a systematic review that was done looking at the interactions between sleep interventions and delirium. And they found that six out of the 10 studies that they included demonstrated a significant reduction in delirium incidence. The problem was most of them though still use subjective tools for assessment. And these are just a long list of the different things that people have tried in order to optimize um, delirium and sleep promotion uh, during the day. But the biggest thing is avoidance of deliriogenic meds. That's a big approach that we can all kind of start to tackle to improve delirium in the pediatric intensive care unit. So, what about the kids? What do we know about delirium in this population? Well, back in the day, in two thousand fourteen, when we did this, two thousand thirteen, when we did the study, only two percent of all the intensivists reported that they were doing delirium screening in their units, mechanically ventilated patients once per shift. But if you ask those two percent what tools they were using, they stated they were using the Sophia Observation Scale and the Watt One Scale. And for those of you who work in the PICU, you know that those are not delirium scales. They're not validated tools. So essentially, hardly anybody was screening for delirium at the time. We have our own tools, though. So we have the Cornell Assessment for Pediatric Delirium, and there's a tool out of Vanderbilt, the PCAM and the PSCAM ICU. And for anyone who's interested in learning more about those, icudelirium.org is a wonderful resource that includes all of those. Uh, One of my former fellows, Melanie cooper flagel decided to look at what are the the barriers to knowledge about delirium within our staff. And not surprisingly, many of our staff still felt that benzodiazepines can be helpful in the treatment of delirium. The delirium usually lasts several hours. And the most important one, I felt, children generally do not remember being delirious. We know unequivocally that that's not true. These kids go home and they remember their delirium and it's very vivid and it can impact them short and long-term. So there's a lot of barriers to diagnosis confusion with agitation, withdrawal, pain. How do you tell the difference? If we don't screen, we can't diagnose it. We tolerate the hypoactive state and busy workflow. I mean, it's a busy, busy morning on rounds and trying to tackle delirium on top of everything else. If the screening is positive, what do you actually do about it? So Wes Ely is one of the fathers of the ICU delirium movement out of Vanderbilt. And when he came to Hopkins for Grand Rounds, there's one quote that stuck with me that I will, I will tell everyone about, which I think is really key. We don't screen for delirium just to diagnose it. We, we, die, we do it because a positive delirium screen after several negative screens is a warning sign for impending badness. So I can tell you right now, once we started consistently screening for delirium, I can't tell you how many times we had a patient who was negative, 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 and then they're positive, And then what happened, their white count tripled and they were bacteremic the next day. So delirium really can be one of the fifth vital signs to tell us that something else bad is happening and the brain is just a marker of that. So we do have point prevalence studies and many other studies now in children that have shown that delirium is a problem. 25% of kids in this point prevalence study did have delirium in all pediatric intensive care units that were included in the study. Physical restraints, narcotics, and benzos were all risk factors. This is a recent study that came out in September of last year that again showed the benzodiazepines increase the risk of delirium and also prolong the hospital stay secondary to delirium. And so we have one large major randomized controlled trial that was done looking at sedation approaches and showed that protocolized sedation wasn't different from um, regular usual care sedation, basically picking a drug randomly. And it didn't show any difference in the major outcomes that it looked at. And one of the primary reasons maybe, because midazolam was a major focus of that sedation algorithm. And so we're learning more and more about benzodiazepines and their role. So what do we do if a patient is positive? Antipsychotics are usually not the answer. There are a Proportion of our patients who do end up on an antipsychotic, we always engage with child psychiatry. I'm not an expert in how to prescribe quetiapine or risperidone, that's not what I trained to do. So our child psychiatrists have become really wonderful partners in helping us see these kids in the unit as soon as we diagnose them with delirium, helping us choose the right medication if that's appropriate and following these kids longitudinally because they're gonna leave the unit eventually. Who's gonna wean them off these drugs? Hopefully they don't need to stay on them for the long term. So where do we go from here? First of all, we wanna challenge the PICU paradigm that kids have to get these large doses of sedatives to tolerate their PICU interventions. We wanna change the standard of care and confirm an unmet need for sleep promotion. And finally, we want to encourage all of our hospital teams and staff to buy into these risk factors for delirium and interventions to prevent it. And we wanna create a healing environment. I'm gonna keep coming back to this slide because we want to promote early mobilization. So what are the benefits of mobility? Again, just like I said, the benefits of sleep are well known to you. You all know what the benefits of mobility are. Exercise makes you feel good and it's good for all of your organ systems. The consequences of immobility for our critically ill patients though, begin at ICU admission and continue through to long-term morbidity. All of their organ systems are impacted. We all talk about the increased risk of clots, and various other morbidities, and then leaving the hospital physical, neurocognitive, and quality of life issues. So what is early mobilization? So when I started talking about this with our PICU staff, everyone started freaking out that I just wanted to start walking all the intubated patients. That was my ultimate goal, right? But really early mobilization is this very wide spectrum of activities. It starts with basic things like normalizing the sleep-wake cycle, If they're physiologically appropriate, doing range of motion exercises, sitting at the edge of the bed, out of bed to chair, and obviously the holy grail of ambulation. So when we look back at the ICU liberation model, early mobility is a major component of that. And as I mentioned, we had this paper that really showed that early mobility could be a major component of that bundle. Lots of literature in the adult world. So again, uh, Dale Needham is one of my mentors, uh, is one of the leaders in this field, and really there are people across the world who are doing some really great work in adult ICU rehab and various aspects. They've shown that weak patients have worse outcomes, they're in the hospital longer, they're less likely to go home at hospital discharge, and they're more likely to die in the hospital. Muscle wasting. So we can talk about these other outcomes like hospital stay, but when you actually look at these patients' muscles, the cross-sectional area, for example, of the rectus femoris can drop by 20% by day 10 if they have multi-system organ failure. If they have single organ failure, even by 10%. So again, we're seeing quantitative differences and ICU acquired weakness. For the therapists in the room who know this, ICU acquired weakness is another big hot topic in the adult ICU literature that we're starting to learn more about in pediatrics. This paper caused a big brouhaha because it was in JAMA, so it must be true, right? So standardized rehab and hospital length of stay among patients with acute respiratory failure. So this was an adult paper that showed that standardizing rehab did not decrease hospital length of stay among patients with acute respiratory failure. So that was a big deal. However, the major limitation of this was that there was no sedation protocol and patients were completely unarousable on 15% of their ventilator days. So it's really hard for a patient to engage in standardized rehab if they're completely unarousable, right? So these are the major limitations. When you read papers, it's really important to kind of look at those nuances for clinical relevance. In a point prevalence study in the adult world, they found that only 32% of patient days had any therapist-provided mobility intervention, and only 4% had ambulation, and obviously negative predictors were ET tubes and delirium. This slide says a lot, of mobilization activities were being conducted by the nurse alone. So the therapists aren't at the bedside 24 hours a day. They're the ones who provide the recommendations and do a lot of the activities at the bedside, but our nurses are there 24 hours a day. So they're really key champions in carrying these mobilization initiatives forward. So I mentioned there's a lot of literature in adults. What about in kids? So Beth Wazorik is a DNP at Hopkins are uh, really the champion of our PICU Up initiative. So we took on a systematic review of early mobilization in the PICU. we were only able, able to identify six studies that could be included, and these were the studies. So you can see here, it's a very heterogeneous group of patient populations. We had TBI, laryngotracheal reconstructions, wee boxing, 14 VADs, and a pectus case report. So again, identifying a knowledge gap and how to tackle it. Karen Chung is one of my close collaborators in Canada who does a lot of wonderful pediatric ICU rehab work. And she showed that it's not just the kids who have developmental disabilities at baseline that are impacted, that healthy kids have issues too. So at six months, kids who had normal baseline function, only 50% of them had returned to their normal baseline function after their critical illness. So we need to address this, not only in the kids who came in with issues, but the kids who came in without any developmental issues to begin with. So the recommendations from that literature review was that early rehab is safe and feasible and that you can have positive outcomes when you pull the team together and you look at your unit culture and your barriers and facilitators. So I mentioned what our culture was, so we did the same thing. We sat down in a room with all of these champions and said, we have a problem, we have to fix it which made us create, pick you up. So we spent our entire first meeting an hour coming up with a cool name, and that's what you always do in your first meeting. So it's a structured and interdisciplinary program. We wanted it to be integrated into the routine care of all critically ill patients, not just the ortho patients or not just the surgical patients, everybody. Provide a standardized mechanism to increase their activities and hopefully increase their outcomes. So this is just the beginning core group. This group has grown significantly. And for anyone who's starting an initiative like this, you have to infuse your group with new energy over time, because it's exhausting. Starting new initiatives like this takes a lot of energy and momentum. And when you bring in new ideas, it can really infuse the group again. So this is the core initial group, which has grown from all different disciplines. So we spent about a year coming up with this program and identifying what it would look like, creating the educational modules we created a three-level system that was objective based on severity of illness, behavioral state, and their pre-morbid history. We wanted everyone to have a shared mental model to say it was okay to stop, because obviously safety first. Um, so we could talk about some of the vital sign changes and device integrity, et cetera. We created a learning module that was applicable to every single person who ever enters our unit from a staff perspective. We wanted it to be something everyone could learn from because not everyone knew anything about early mobilization in kids. It was a shift-based scenario. So kids change over time, right? So we had Jade and Jade looked good at the beginning of her shift. She was just there probably for a short pick you stay. We incorporate the state behavioral score and delirium screening because it's again, all integrated. So uh, this is all available in the pick you up paper, so I won't belabor these, but basically quantitative criteria, level one, two, and three. Level one are the sickest patients. Level three are the ones who are likely ready to transfer to the floor. And the program essentially included a lot of basic aspects. For example, sleep hygiene. Again, lights on, shades up by 9 a.m. How often are the shades down because the parents are in the back of the room sleeping and we don't want to bother them? But we created a culture that made sure that everyone knew that we're trying to optimize care for your child, for this patient, so we're going to optimize their sleep hygiene throughout. Limiting TV time. So um, in our unit, at least, we would have the TV on 24 hours a day at some bedsides because it just seemed like a natural thing to do, right? Keep them stimulated. It's a horrible thing for their sleep hygiene and for delirium, for example. Imagine being delirious and having a cartoon on that potentially could make those nightmares worse. We wanted to get our therapist to the bedside early, regardless, because we felt very strongly that no matter what, there is always something you can do with the patient from a mobilization perspective. No child is too sick. And how often were we having our nurses turn away the therapist because the patient was too sick for therapy? What does that mean? Therapy doesn't mean getting the kid out of bed necessarily. There are a lot of other things that they could do. These are our rest and reassess guidelines. Um, we, used, we didn't want everyone to run away screaming, so we excluded our ECMO patients initially. And so now that we've created this culture, we incorporated and pick you up ECMO levels um, and hopefully hope to do ambulation with ECMO patients. There's a lot of centers out there who are already doing a great job with this. So we did a program evaluation. It was a pre-post-eval looking at July of 2014 and July of 2015, all comers who came to our unit during that time. You can see that they were very similar in terms of their demographics. The second group was a little sicker, which has probably led to our no change in our PICU length of stay. However, the major things we wanted to demonstrate is no adverse events, so over the 770 days, we found that nothing bad happened, and obviously that was a major, major proponent for carrying the process forward. We were able to increase the number of patients that had OT consults, PT consultations, well, not only early on, but by discharge, and that number's up to 100% now. Culture change takes time, so we needed to continue to infuse the median number of mobilization activities doubled from three to six. And that wasn't all because of therapy, it was because our nurses felt empowered to create an opportunities for mobilization at the bedside. Barriers. So we thought that the patients and the parents were more likely to be barriers to these efforts. Our families are the biggest advocates for mobilization. When they understand that having their kid awake and alert and mobilizing is a good thing, they want it to happen all the time it's now the need for money comes to play, where you need equipment, because you're actually moving kids, you realize what the holes are, and you need equipment to move a large range and a variety of patients. This is Shin Yamura, he's an intensivist from Japan, who looked at predictors of early rehab before you implement a program like this, and surprisingly to us, we were neglecting the kids who had normal baseline function. So we were very quick, so if you had, CP and you came in after a posterior spinal fusion, we were gonna consult PTOT immediately on post-op day one. But if you're a completely healthy kid who got ARDS and got unlucky, we tended not to think about PTOT until later in the game. So again, we needed to change our paradigm of thinking. Safety, timeout, accountability. Our attendings are accountable for covering all aspects of this on every kid, every day. This is what we call our every kid, every day card. Every um, unit has a different form of this but essentially we run through the ABCDF bundle and make sure that it's filled out so that we don't forget any of these components on any kid during rounds. So we did start to break down the silos and create this culture of mobility. What's happening now? So in the last few minutes, I'm gonna finish up with uh, updates and case studies. Families pick you up. So we realized we weren't doing a great job with educating our families about the importance of these initiatives. So the Families Pick You Up menu basically creates opportunities for families to say what they're comfortable with and what they want to help with. Some families don't want to do a diaper change in the unit when they come and to help out. Others want to do everything. They want to do suctioning and chest PT. So we wanted to find out what they're comfortable with and educate them so that they can be a part of their child's care. A lot of our families felt that Engaging them was ideal, but they need education because it's an intimidating setting, especially the patients and families who are new to the PICU, who've never been there. It's a very scary place, and so they need to be guided. Park picu which uh, Connecticut Children's was a part of, is our next uh, major initiative, and the study is officially finished. You can check us out on the website. But essentially, we wanted to do a point prevalence study in US PICUs to see whether we were doing a good job with this or not. Again, I'm not the expert in rehab. I wanted to see how often we're engaging our therapist colleagues. Our goal was to have 30 PICUs over two days with 1,000 patients. We ended up with 82 units across the country with 1,800 patients. So really a testament to people like Allison and site PIs across the country who made this happen. So this is the site map to show you how many units and the geographical distribution. Um, we now have over two hundred sites internationally. So we have fifty-four sites in Brazil, sixty sites in Europe, and um, Park Australia and Asia are getting started now. So the most fun part of the talk are our case studies. So. I want to talk about these cases to give context to kind of this entire culture change um, that I just talked about. So this is Iris. She's a 13 year old with advanced cancer after a bone marrow transplant. Um, She had severe sepsis that required ECMO through the femoral site. So this was one of our first pick you up champions. Even though we excluded ECMO initially, we saw an opportunity and we wanted to make sure that the rest of the unit saw the possibilities. So we made a pact. We said, we're not gonna put her on benzos. We're gonna give her a low dose morphine PCA and give her control to push the button when she wants and give, take care of the noxious stimuli of the endotracheal tube but otherwise have her awake and alert during her ECMO course. She texted her mother, her friends, she did homework throughout the entire course of ECMO, was decannulated and went home. This case highlighted the importance and the possible successfulness of an initiative like this but it also highlighted a couple things we didn't think about. So Iris went home and unfortunately her cancer came back and she went on palliative care and passed away at home. So when the staff heard about this, they were disheartened. They said, you know, you know we did all of this to you know, make sure that Iris had a great quality of life and then look what happened. But her mother came back to us and told us that those moments that she had with her daughter in the hospital communicating with her were priceless at the end of her life, and that she would, she would wish that that happened for every child that came into the unit. So even though not all of our kids do well, the things that we do for them can have an impact on their families long-term. Case study two is a nine-year-old who had alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma. She was intubated for airway protection. Again, no benzos, low-dose morphine PCA, and it's a lot to ask a nine-year-old to be intubated and just chill out and not get any medication and just say you're gonna get a little pain control, right? So this is um, what Brooke did. So Brooke was our first patient to walk with an endotracheal tube. Um, She walked to the playroom, she played with Barbies and she went back to her room and then she continued to do this over the course of her intubation. This was our first patient that we did this with and she was our pick you up champion because we took pictures, we celebrated the success with the rest of the unit and people saw that it was a possibility. This is a two-year-old after a Fontan. So not every patient who's impacted by Pick You Up needs to be intubated. So she's immediately post-op day one. And um, one of her nurses that day was like one of our early adopters of Pick You Up. She was like, girlfriend, you're gonna walk this morning. That's how we're gonna do this. So Sydney wasn't having it. And you can't blame her, right? (laughs) I mean, look, she's got... a fresh chest incision, she has art lines, she has two chest strains hanging off her little body, She has multiple monitors, her IJ line's still in there. I mean, this sucks, like how can we expect her to walk? But her parents actually came to the rescue and they said she walked in, she rolled into the operating room for her fontan in one of those little Tykes Cozy Coupe cars. So can you find one of those? We didn't have one in the PICU at the time, but we went and borrowed it. And what you see next is how creativity can overcome a lot of toddler spirit. You're doing so great. She has her little sandals on. (laughs) Look at those legs go. So we have a 40-bed unit, and Sydney went around the unit four times in that cozy coupe car. Awesome. So it is possible to mobilize these kids in very creative ways. And so she felt bad for us, so she brought us back our own cozy coupe car with a personalized license plate. So there's a lot of kids benefiting from the little Tykes car. I get asked a lot about, well, you can do this with older kids, but what about babies? So, right, if we take care of a majority of babies in the PICU, is it possible? And the answer is yes. If you use a start low, go slow strategy, intubated babies could cry too, just like healthy babies who aren't intubated. So kind of creating that culture change around why do they need more sedation? If they need it for physiologic reasons, then fine, but we can have kids awake and alert even as young as this. And so the final case study is a seven-year-old who spent 662 days in our PICU. She had severe inhalational injury from a 35% TBSA burn. She ended up with a left BKA. She was on ECMO for about 60 days and an RVAD for 491 days. She wasn't expected to survive. And this is essentially a picture of her at the beginning of our course for a very long time. But over the course of time, we tricked her early. She was in the middle of our PICU-UP initiative when we were getting everything started. PTOT was so integral along with the rest of the staff in making this happen. We brought a cow to the hospital courtyard. This is Pantene, her dairy cow, um, who she hadn't seen in 600 days. So we brought the cow to the courtyard, pet therapy played a major role, and really our staff came together to create amazing opportunities for her. This is her first walk Ready. on ECMO. Rock and roll. And you can see she has her prosthesis. There's about six people in the front that you can't see. So obviously, it takes a huge multidisciplinary effort. But staff satisfaction has increased significantly because they're getting to engage in these type of activities, which really Good makes people happy. You. Good job. Oh my gosh. So people are very excited. And then Reese gets tired and she, Someone's at the ready with the wheelchair for her to sit down. So Reese got her own tricycle next, and she started wheeling around the ECMO, wheel, wheeling around the PICU on her tricycle on ECMO. So again, a major initiative, but safety first. Always wear a helmet. <laughs> and we know how to have fun too. So Reese has a good sense of humor, and this is my favorite. <laughs> So you can see every one of these pictures involves our staff who really are the ones that make it all happen. So in summary, consistency creates culture change, clustering our non-emergent interventions and optimizing rehab to promote communication is key. Start low, go slow. Critically ill kids can tolerate an ET tube and communicate with us and push the envelope safely and celebrate all of your successes, big or small. We bought a lot of cake. Always remember your patient's biggest and most effective advocates and champions. Lots of additional resources. You're always welcome to email me at at sapna.jhmi.edu. Lots of people to thank.